As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. I couldn't believe it of him because he had behaved so normally at home, said Sonia Sutcliffe of her serial killing husband, Peter. In today's episode, we head back to the time of the Yorkshire Ripper's reign of terror to look at a hoax which had a major effect on the results of the inquiry. Today I tell the story of Wearside Jack with thanks to Chris Wood, friend of the show, for the research and writing of this episode. Thanks, Chris. But before we start, a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, but especially to this week's new supporters, Joe Lofthouse and Steve Pawsey. I hope you all enjoyed bonus episode 20, which was released this week. So a bit of context to 1978. The UK music charts were dominated by the musical Grease, with I won't sing it, You're the One I Want and Summer Nights at two and three in the best-selling charts for the year, just behind Boney M with the double A-side Rivers of Babylon and Brown Girl in the Ring. I don't know about you, but I love the guy from Boney M. He had a similar dancing style to my own, though style's probably not quite the right word. In the US, Andy Gibb with Shadow Dancing took the top spot for the year, and in Australia, the soundtrack from Saturday Night Fever topped the charts. This year saw the first baby, born by IVF, Louise Brown's birth in Oldham, meaning she was the first human to be born this way. In February, 25-year-old Scotland central defender Gordon McQueen became Britain's first half-million-pound footballer in a transfer from Leeds United to... What is that? Oh, Oh, Manchester United. Sorry. Chris! Chris says, I'm tempted to drop in here that Leeds were a feeder club all the way back then too. But the way Man United are going at the moment, I better not. Yeah, a good judgment call from you there, Chris. Anna Ford became the first female newsreader on ITN. And it was the Football World Cup in Argentina. Remember that? Kempes! <coughs> yeah. Ah, oh, <laughs> my Scottish listeners will remember the sense of anticipation ahead of the tournament with so many great players. Didn't quite work out. This case is a little different to some of those featured on this podcast. For one thing, it goes back a little later than most episodes. And secondly, as you know, I generally look at some of the lesser-known stories around UK true crime. But this one has been linked heavily to one of the most prominent killers the country has ever encountered, Peter Sutcliffe, better known to us all as the Yorkshire Ripper. But this isn't an episode on Sutcliffe. 
If you want to listen to an outstanding podcast about him and his crimes, take a listen to Case File, that consistently excellent true crime podcast made an amazing three-parter about the Yorkshire Ripper. If you haven't heard it, go and listen now. Well, after this, of course. But today's show is about a man whose actions ensured that his name would forever be entwined alongside one of the UK's most horrific serial killers. Suckliff's crimes had a devastating effect on everyone involved, especially the friends and families of the women and girls he attacked and murdered. His first known murder victim, 28-year-old Wilma McCann, was killed on October 29th, 1975, leaving her four children without a mum. One of her children, Sonia, was particularly shattered by her mum's murder, leading to a terrible alcohol addiction. Despite time spent in the rehabilitation centre, she was unable to cope with the destruction that Sutcliffe had brought upon her and her family, causing her to commit suicide in December 2007. There are so many devastating stories of the misery caused by this monster, but they're for another podcast. From 1975 through to 1980, he wreaked havoc across northern England. A five-year reign of sheer terror saw at least 13 women murdered, while another eight at least were attacked by him. All of the victims were female, and all were brutally attacked with a hammer before being stabbed to death. But these are just clear examples of his work. There are many other potential victims, both male and female, where Sutcliffe is the prime suspect. The frenzied nature of his attacks led to the nickname the Yorkshire Ripper, and he was the country's most wanted man as police launched the UK's biggest ever manhunt. Police had thousands of potential suspects and very detailed descriptions of the attacker, but one suspect in particular stood out, and he was almost at the centre of the investigation. This suspect, over the course of a year between March 1978 and March 1979, sent three letters in which they claimed to be the Yorkshire Ripper. Postmarked from Sunderland in the northeast of England, two of the letters were addressed to Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield, who was in charge of the investigation, and also one was sent to the Daily Mirror. The first of these letters landed on George Oldfield's desk on the 8th of March 1978. It read, Dear Sir, I'm sorry I cannot give my name for obvious reasons. I am the Ripper. I've been dubbed a maniac by the press, but not you. You call me clever and I am. You and your mates haven't a clue that that photo in the paper gave me fits and that bit about killing myself, no chance. I've got things to do. My purpose to rid the streets of them sluts. My one regret is that young lassie MacDonald. Did not know cause change routine that night. Up to number eight, now you say seven, but remember Preston 75. Get about, you know. You were right, I travel a bit. You probably look for me in Sunderland. Don't bother, I'm not daft. Just posted letter there on one of my trips. Not a bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham and other places. Worn horse to keep off the streets, because I feel it coming on again. Sorry again. Sorry about young lassie. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Might write again later. I'm not sure last one really deserved it. Horse getting younger each time. Old slut next time, I hope. Huddersfield, 
never again. Too small. Close call last one. Although the police were used to people claiming responsibility for all sorts of attacks, well, they still are, the receipt of this still had to be treated seriously. Dick Holland, formerly of the West Yorkshire Police Department, said later, Generally speaking, it was thought that if the author wasn't the ripper, then they certainly knew something about it. And this, in a nutshell, confirms how genuine the police considered the letter to be in their quest for the killer. It contained detailed information on the attacks, so you can understand why it was taken seriously. The letter does also bear resemblance to the letters that were sent to police way back in 1888, where the original Jack the Ripper taunted police with similar language during the failed attempts to apprehend the man who caused such pandemonium across Whitehall, in that case still loved by so many, but which utterly bores me to tears. So could this letter to George Oldfield merely have been the work of an elaborate hoaxer, somebody with an unhealthy interest in Jack the Ripper and simply pretending to be a newer version? The police instantly thought not. They concluded from a very early stage that this letter was indeed the handiwork of the murderer and did not seem to entertain any other possibility. Probably a case of desperation influencing logic here as they were under such pressure to get a quick result. A mere five days after the first letter had been sent, another was received, this time at the offices of the Daily Mirror newspaper. Again postmarked Sunderland, it read, Dear Sir, I've already written Chief Constable Oldfield, a man I respect, concerning the recent Ripper murders. I told him, and I'm telling you, to warn them whores I'll strike again and soon when heat cools off. About the MacDonald lassie, I didn't know that she was decent, and I'm sorry I changed my routine that night. Up to murder eight now, you say, but remember Preston 75. Easy picking them up, don't even have to try. You think they'll learn, but they don't. Most are young lassies. Next time try older one, I hope. Police haven't a clue as yet and I don't leave any, I'm very clever, and don't think of looking for any fingerprints, because there aren't any. And don't look for me up in Sunderland, because I'm not stupid, just pass through the place. Not a bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham, can't walk the streets for them whore. Don't forget, warn them, I feel it coming on again if I get the chance. Sorry about Lassie, I didn't know. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper might write again after another one's gone. Maybe Liverpool or even Manchester again. Too hot here in Yorkshire. Bye. I've given advance warning, so it's yours and theirs fault. The apology for the MacDonald lassie refers to Jane MacDonald, who was the first of Sutcliffe's non-sex worker victims. Indeed, to this day Sutcliffe apparently expresses remorse about this killing, claiming... The next one I did I still feel terrible about. It was the young girl, Jane MacDonald. The reason behind his regret was that he'd mistakenly believed that she was selling sex, but in fact she was just a 16-year-old shop assistant. Although the letters were postmarked Sunderland, there wasn't anything specifically in them that suggested the writer was actually from that area of the North East. However, the next contact left no doubting 
as to where the author was from. On the 17th of June 1979, George Oldfield once again received correspondence from The Ripper, but this time it came in the form of an audio cassette. In the tape recording, he appeared to taunt and tease the police, particularly George Oldfield, whom he again addressed personally. I'm Jack. I see you're still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you are no nearer to catch me now than four years ago when I started. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. You can't be much good, can you? The only time they came near catching me was a few months back in Chapel Town, when I was disturbed. Even then it was a uniform copper, not a detective. I warned you in March that I'd strike again. Sorry it wasn't Bradford. I did promise you that, but I couldn't get there. I'm not sure when I will strike again, but it will definitely be sometime this year, maybe September or October, even soon if I get the chance. I'm not sure where, maybe Manchester. I like there. There's plenty of them knocking about. They never learn, do they, George? I bet you've warned them, but they never listen. At the rate I'm going, I should be in the book of records. I think it's 11 up to now, isn't it? Well, I'll keep on going for quite a while yet. I can't see myself being nicked just yet. Even if you do get near, I'll probably top myself first. Oh well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Jack the Ripper. No good looking for fingerprints. You should know by now it's as clean as a whistle. See you soon. Bye-o. Hope you like the catchy tune at the end. Ha-ha. The catchy tune at the end, referred to by the apparent ripper, was in connection with a segment of a song that was played at the end of his recorded message. Andrew Gold's 1978 single, Thank You For Being A Friend, was played. Another apparent personal dig at Oldfield and his team. The pressure that Oldfield was now under to catch the ripper was becoming unbearable and it felt personal for him. But Oldfield did at least believe that he and his team now had a major lead. And this became the focus of the manhunt. With politicians and media clamouring for a breakthrough in the case, nothing new there of course, Oldfield took the decision to go public with the letters and tape. The tape was released in the hope that somebody would be able to identify the voice and with it the identity of the killer. The audio, as you probably know, can be heard online. It's quite a chilling message and it certainly does appear to contain knowledge in it that only somebody at the scene of the murders would know. In further attempts to clarify its authenticity, George Oldfield sought the advice of several external agencies that specialised in dialect. Even the FBI were consulted, and it was their belief that the author of the tape and the letters was a blatant hoaxer. But this did nothing to deter Oldfield and his colleagues from their stance that there was more to them than merely a hoax. Together with voice analysts, they decided that the accent was distinctive to the Castletown area of Sunderland in the northeast. This, then, was the area where the police narrowed down their focus, believing they were honing in on the murderer. The police commenced a substantial publicity campaign, which included billboards, full-page ads in newspapers, and also the creation of the Dial the Ripper hotlines, where members of the public could call a hotline 
and they can listen firsthand to the Ripper's tape. George Oldfield wasn't just ignoring the experts' opinions of the validity of the letters and the tape, he was also disregarding the information from those that surely ought to be the main point of consultation, those who had survived an attack from the man responsible, all of whom stated that the man did not have a Wearside accent. Ah, we can see it though, can't we? The dangers of being too involved in a situation and unable to see the bigger picture, huh? As Sutcliffe continued to cause devastation and widespread fear as the number of his victims piled up, the feeling of revulsion and fear that shrouded the streets of the North, but particularly West Yorkshire, grew even more. People were genuinely afraid to be out alone after dark. Women were calling for men to be placed under curfew at night time. Just such terrifying times, it's hard to give a flavour of just how scary it was back then. A huge total of over 40,000 men were quizzed in connection with the tape, but to no avail. It was clear that the police were concentrating on the voice on the tape as a point of elimination, rather than a line of inquiry. In other words, they believed that if anybody interviewed did not have the Wearside accent, then they simply could not be the Ripper. However, on the 2nd of January 1981, Peter Sutcliffe was arrested in Melbourne Avenue, Sheffield, in a chance arrest as he prepared to attack another sex worker, and he was finally charged with the murders of 13 women on the 5th of January the following year. Following a two-week trial, Sutcliffe was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to life imprisonment. This is of course something most listeners will be aware of. You may also be aware that Sutcliffe does not have a Wearside accent. Instead, he has a softly spoken Yorkshire accent. Tragically, it later came to light that he was actually interviewed by police a staggering nine times, but was eliminated for many reasons on at least one occasion as he did not sound as though he was from Sunderland. With Sutcliffe having now admitted the killings and claiming he was carrying out God's orders by killing women selling sex, one thing was finally certain. The Wearside Jack letters and tape were indeed a hoax. Perhaps a huge relief of having Sutcliffe behind bars was one of the principal reasons that a major investigation was never organised to try and apprehend the man who had so devastatingly swung the course of the Ripper inquiry down an utterly blind alley. After all, the real killer was no longer free and really detectives just wanted to forget the pretty disastrous hunt for the Ripper. As well as leaving police rather red-faced, the man from Wearside had also left them with a £1 million bill for the publicity drive which they'd set up, which was not an insignificant amount of money back then, or even today. So as time elapsed and people moved on with their lives, the author of these letters and tape from the person purporting to be the Yorkshire Ripper faded more and more into obscurity. He seemed to vanish in as much mystery as he'd initially entered the public consciousness all the way back in 1978. Indeed, on the 17th of September 2003, the BBC reported that the police had officially decided to call off their tentative search for the hoaxer. It was also made apparent that there'd been no plans to reopen the case as far too much time had elapsed and modern forensic tests would probably be inaccurate due to chemicals used in the original testing 
in the 70s. However, in December 2005, Detective Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg of West Yorkshire Police's Homicide and Major Inquiry Team decided to review the case. This turned out to be a great decision, as a major breakthrough was waiting for him. A small piece of the gum seal from one of the envelopes sent by the hoaxer was located in a forensics lab. Following some publicity about the cold case review, a retired scientist who had worked on the original investigation handed over the hoax tape to police, and the result was remarkable. The DNA that was retrieved from the envelopes sent as part of the hoax were matched to the UK's National DNA Database, and it matched a sample police had obtained from a totally unrelated incident that occurred in 2000. A man called John Humble had been arrested and cautioned for a simple drunken disorderly offence. After remaining both faceless and nameless for over 24 years, it finally appeared that a minor offence had managed to inadvertently capture the man that had years previously pretended to be the Yorkshire Ripper. On October the 20th, 2005, police went to Humble's home in the Ford estate in Sunderland where he was arrested and charged with four counts of perverting the course of justice. Humble had been so drunk when they turned up that police had to wait several hours before they could interview him. It would later transpire that in recent years, he lived a rather sad life and become a loner, an alcoholic. Under interview, he quickly admitted responsibility for the letters and the cassette. The reality was that hoaxer John Samuel Humber was a bricklayer in his early 20s when he carried out the crimes, who still lived with his mum, and his insight was from copying passages of letters from library books about the original 1988 Whitechapel murders. Humble waited until his brother Henry, two years his junior, was away with the army before making the chilling recording on a cassette tape bought from Woolworths. Grains of custard power that were found on the casing suggested that he was probably in his kitchen when he dictated his taunting message to George Oldfield. The letters and tape were sent from the same post box outside Ford Post Office in Sunderland, near where Humble lived with his mum Violet and his sister Jean, who was then 15. Writing in the Independent newspaper, journalist Paul Stokes recounts how 12 days after the body of Barbara Leach aged 20, a Bradford University student, was found near her home in September 1979, Humble anonymously telephoned a police incident room, saying that the tape was a hoax, having realised it had gone too far. But it was discounted, as the voice did not have a Wearside accent, are the irony. And weeks later, apparently full of remorse, Humble jumped from a bridge in a suicide attempt But as with much else in his life, it failed. He landed on a boat, was rescued by police, and having sustained multiple injuries, he spent three months in hospital, where he also received psychiatric treatment. Humble, aged 50 when arrested, was regarded as an above-average pupil at junior school and secondary school in Sunderland. After school, he did a succession of jobs, but it's believed he didn't work after 1988. He was 33 when he met and married Anne Mason, a mother of two, after a six-week romance. He was abusive to her, 
and one of his assaults led to conviction for common assault and their separation in 2002. Growing up, Humble had no hobbies, but he was obsessed with Jack the Ripper. After his marriage breakup, he went to live with his brother on the Ford Estates close to their childhood home. Both spent their days drinking cider in the run-down, poorly furnished house. And when police arrived to arrest John Humble, they were both in a drunken stupor. During his interviews with police when he sobered up, he appeared genuinely ashamed of what he had done, referring to the acts as evil. He claimed he'd set up the hoax in a bid for notoriety, but he also had a deeply ingrained hatred of the police, following his imprisonment for assaulting a police officer back in 1975, a crime for which he spent time in a youth offenders hostel. At first he claimed the motivation was because, quote, coppers were useless, but he eventually admitted it was bored, because he was bored. He said, it was a stupid thing to do. No kidding there, and I've regretted it ever since. Despite the shame he appeared to feel, he still seemed to find his hoax amusing, laughing at several points during the interview, most notably when asked about the tune played at the end of the tape he sent. And why was that tune picked? Well, it transpired. It was just on the tape anyway. No hidden meaning. He rather naively said he did not realise the implications his actions were having on the police investigation. Because of this, he denied the charges of perverting the course of justice, instead hoping to be charged with a lesser offence of wasting police time. However, he finally admitted to being Wearside Jack on the 23rd of February 2006 and later changed his plea to guilty on all four counts of perverting the course of justice. It can clearly be argued that Humble had blood on his hands and although never directly responsible for physically murdering anyone himself, his thoughtlessness and selfish actions diverted valuable police resources and allowed Sutcliffe to remain free to commit more murders. On March the 21st, 2006, at Leeds Crown Court, John Humble was sentenced to eight years in jail. Paul Worsley, QC, claimed in court that letters were sent by someone that had amassed an encyclopedic knowledge of the Yorkshire Ripper and his movements had intended to throw police off the scent. Interestingly, he also revealed the implication that Humble's hoax had had on the real Ripper. As after his arrest, Sutcliffe had said, While ever that was going on, I felt safe. I'm not a Geordie or from Wearside. I was born at Shipley. So Humble's actions gave Sutcliffe renewed confidence to go out on the streets of the North and feel safe that he would not become a suspect while police continued to focus on the man with the Wearside accent. Now John Humble is back on his native Wearside following his release from prison in 2010. He has since admitted to relatives that he was young and daft and the letter simply started off as a bit of fun. He also revealed that he was obsessed with crimes of old such as Jack the Ripper and even the Moors murderers and that initially he did get a sinister kick from writing the letters. Relatives of John Humble revealed that their lives had been made increasingly difficult since the unmasking of the hoaxer. His sister Jean said, We had windows smashed and were abused in the street. And even after he got out of prison, he was beaten up three times. He has moved on with his life, we all have. 
but no one will ever forget what he did. And one man that certainly could never forget what John Humble did was George Oldfield. Despite his blind insistence that the sender of the letters and the voice on the tape were definitely the work of the Ripper, it's difficult not to feel sympathy for him. The pressure and stress he was under in the years of trying to apprehend a serial killer that clearly had no desire to stop until he was caught took a huge toll on his health. The personal taunts that were directed straight towards him hit him extremely hard. In 1979, during his work on the Ripper investigation, he suffered the first of two heart attacks and he retired in 1983, following what he considered to be a complete humiliation. George Oldfield sadly died in 1985, aged just 61. Many people consider Oldfield to be the final victim of John Humble, one man's misguided quest for notoriety, which took himself and a terrified nation down the blind alley for years, and with it, and most tragically, allowing Peter Sutcliffe, one of the UK's worst ever killers, to continue his butchery. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please head to the Facebook group to discuss this story, the price of fish, or any other aspects of UK true crime. Or to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where you can listen to all 20 bonus episodes, as well as other exclusive content. So that's all from me for today. Until next week, when it's party, 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 episode 100. Just how exciting is that? Come on, on a scale of 1 to 10, how exciting. Anyway, enough until next week. So until then, it's cheerio for now for me. And remember, stay classy out there. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.